0: Yeah, so I was thinking Halloween. Like I didn't – so there's a debate that I've seen where people say trick-or-treating is not really a thing anymore, that they're more a fan of the trunk-or-treat events. Uh, so I made sure the lights are off in my house. I didn't give out any candy because, you know, kids don't need any more candy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you had quite a few in your neighborhood, yeah. right?
1: I took the opposite approach. I literally set a fire pit out in my uh... – <laughs> in my driveway with like, you know, an umbrella and we had the lawn chairs. We really got into it.
0: Come on up, kids. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It was very inviting. Um, you know, I come Who are
0: the- you supposed to be? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's my was. it's always like these anime characters and I'm like, I am so I don't even know what that is. So old. I'm like, is that some kind is that that you kids are so cute, you know, and I used to be hit back what? in the day. Where's
0: the where's the werewolf and the vampires? <laughs> uh so yeah, the other controversy around trick or treating is do you take your kids and take them outside of your neighborhood to go trick-or-treat in the more uh, affluent areas yes. of trick-or-treating?
1: The full the full candy bar crowd. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Let, let's, let's go over to Kevin's neighborhood. He gives out the good candy, you know, like
1: the, <laughs> the full soda cans and, and the full candy bars. I mean, I think if you like live in the country or something like that where it's like, all right, if you trick-or-treat and you hit, you know, you want to. Get like two hours of trick or treating. If you live in the country, that's like two houses. If you're walking it, yeah, you know, turn, you know, and there might be some folks in our in our demographic here that are like, yeah, let's get the kids on a ruck march for some food. Oh, good Lord. some for some candy. But I think it's okay if you do that. But if you're just like my neighborhood sucks, I'm going to go to another neighborhood. Yeah, that's going to give me some full candy bar. That's that's integrity violation. It's an ethics. Ed- <laughs> yeah, ethics, <laughs> business ethics. You uh, know, like it's a thing. I don't know, man.
0: <laughs> Let the kids enjoy.
1: Yeah, I think you just you just go till you run out of candy, you know, at the the trick or treat, and then you just turn the light off. Like you did you, did
0: you buy the good candy or did you buy the, in, buy the instead candy, of like Snickers? It's we're know, not giving
1: like the wax candy that grandma yeah. used to give out or yeah. candy corn. No, oh, okay, the good stuff. Right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you, you don't want to get your house taped later, you know I mean? <laughs> Is that still a thing? To oh, give that's on? still a thing. You give out the wrong candy. That that's still a thing. <laughs> You know, I don't know. I'm new to the South though. So like maybe upper Midwest, we get a little salty. It's cold outside and you're going to give me candy corn. Nah, man.
0: You might get a flaming bag of...
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right, everybody. (laughs)
0: Welcome to the Indigenous Approach, the official podcast of the Army's First Special Forces Command, a podcast too unconventional to be called conventional. Okay, so we know it's been a while since we've been gone. There hasn't been an episode since May. Everybody keeps asking me, when's it coming back? When's it coming back? Well, guess what? If you're listening to it, we're back. (laughs) So... yeah. You know, it's been a while, change of command, new people, uh, you know, a whole new crew here. So we're your hosts. I'm Russ. I'm Kevin. And so for this uh, new take on the indigenous approach, we're going with a new format. We're going to mix in some lighthearted entertainment, trash topics sometimes. (laughs) Uh, And we're also going to talk, you know, some serious topics and issues, things that touch on maybe RSOF, culture, history, legacy, and also like some current event sort of stuff as well. Uh, So yeah, welcome back. Thanks for listening. Uh, We missed you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just got here, but I missed you all already.
0: (laughs) All right. So in this episode, uh, first up, there was a major OPSEC violation that shook the world on social media. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about
1: that. Uh, And then we're definitely going to get into some of the Veterans Day activities going on in the Fayetteville, North Carolina area.
0: And then lastly, it's coming up on the 60th anniversary of the passing of President John F. Kennedy. We're going to talk to Dr. Jerry Tracy. He's the Deputy Historian for United States Army Special Operations Command. So we'll talk about Kennedy's contributions to uh, Special Forces Regiment. And it's also kind of tied in with our annual wreath laying at JFK's gravesite on 8 November. All
1: right. All right. So, so first, we, we get in the first. first yeah, man. Here.
0: Yeah. Lay it out for me. Obstacle violation. What All happened? Right. Who did it? Wh- so, who's to blame? So the blame? So
1: the Biden administration recently released a photograph of what was claimed as first responders, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but many believe to be tier one or higher than tier one special operators. We cannot confirm nor deny <laughs> that. But what we can say is that. Uh, Likely the uh, what happened was is it was a photo opportunity with the president, um, and we probably have a 25, 26-year-old intern taking the photograph with her cell phone, his or her cell phone, and just throwing it on social media, trying to get ahead of the curve, right? So uh, about 14.5 million impressions Hoo! prior to realizing the naughty thing that they did, um, releasing this photo without doing any kind of operational security checking prior Mm, mm, to release mm, mm.
0: so like you said uh those people are really young i remember working with um it was it was last year we worked with uh, the first lady's office on something and uh her comms people were like 23 years old (laughs) right (laughs) uh so yeah by the time you add that in somebody outside the military they don't they don't understand or whatever uh but they did say, oops, and took it down. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, after some feedback from this soft community and other, uh, you know, defense officials, essentially. Yeah.
0: Hey, hey, they're first responders. Yeah, that's absolutely uh, right. You know, so it's it's all okay. That's but, the
1: holding statement. We're sticking to it.
0: Yeah. But some people did, you know, we we're talking about it. Some uh, people did come by the office and was like, hey,
1: did you guys see that?
0: And they, like, laughed at about it. It was like, yeah, yeah, we saw it. Yeah. So it ain't our fault. We didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, you run into that's the importance of having these types of reviews, right? So that uh, we're making sure that our uh, our brothers and sisters down range are, are safe and their identities remain intact. You know, so it's just stuff to think about. Um, you know, nobody got hurt in this situation, but it, it definitely can have a, a negative impact.
0: Look, look at Kevin bringing it home with the the PSA sort of public service <laughs> announcement. Hey, guys, ID, identity <laughs> management. Uh, and I also joke around because, you know, the identity management stuff, I hear it a lot, but then, uh, I see people very loosey-goosey on social media and their ODA yes. t-shirts and numbers and stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, the hash, hashtag, you know, soft on Instagram is, is a pretty hot place <laughs> to go check out your, uh, your, your GB friends, you know?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, good lesson learned there. And, um, uh, good moment to kind of laugh at, even though it is serious, but, you know, uh. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so next up, Veterans Day. Uh, Depending on when you're listening to this, it's uh, Veterans Day time. So 11th of November, originally known as Armistice Day, which in case you didn't know, that is tied to the end of World War I on uh, 11th of November, 11th hour, uh, 1918. That's when the war ended. So it started out as Armistice Day and then – in nineteen forty five, a veteran, a guy named Raymond Weeks, guy from Birmingham, Alabama, had the great idea. I was like, Hey, Armistice Day, you know, we kind of should expand it to include all the veterans, you know, because we just fought this other big world war, you know, <laughs> World One Two, you know, we did one, so now it's two. Just in case there's ever a third, uh, we've covered all the veterans yeah. and all the wars.
1: We don't want to run out of days on the calendar, you know?
0: Yeah. So uh he, he's kind of the guy that's credited with uh getting it started as a Veterans Day celebration. So he did it uh, unofficially starting in 1947 as the first unofficial official Veterans Day celebration, and it didn't become uh, changed officially to Veterans Day until 1954. And in close running for second for the name of Veterans Day was actually Mayflower Day because it is also the anniversary of, Signing of the Mayflower Compact. And uh, in case you don't know what that is, uh, look it up. It's from third grade, your third grade history class. Yeah. Uh, Some lesser known Veterans Day facts. First of all, do you know how it's correctly spelled?
1: Veterans Day? Yeah. Is
0: it Veteran Day or is it Veterans Day with apostrophe S? Is it Veterans Apostrophe
1: or is it? I can't say it's possessive. Uh, So I would say I I would go against the apostrophe.
0: Yeah. It is uh, no apostrophe at all. All right. Veterans Day. And it also gets mixed up uh, with Veterans Day, Memorial Day, and Armed Forces Day. The three big triad, if you will, (laughs) of military holidays uh, so Veterans Day for people who have served, no longer wearing the uniform, Memorial Day is for the people who never got to take the uniform off, died in service and Armed Forces Day for lucky folks like me and Kevin who are still wearing the uniform.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: If you want to be a, uh, integrity violator, you can still go to Applebee's <laughs> active duty and get your Veterans Day free <laughs> meal. I will judge you because it's Applebee's. And also the the lack of integrity because you're not a veteran.
1: I'm telling you, sir, the the five dollar margaritas are to die for at Applebee's. It, it can't
0: okay. can be good tequila that's <laughs> in there, man. Five dollar. I mean,
1: there's there's added sugar, we'll say.
0: But yeah, so some other facts. Uh, how many veterans are serving, or how many veterans there are? Nineteen million veterans in this country it's quite a bit, uh, a lot more than you would think, you know, just because so many, like, what was it, 1% of a yeah. serve we're talking about? Uh, so 19 million veterans, 13% of them are females. And Veterans Day, along with your free meals, is actually, like, second in uh, shopping deal day. And uh, I don't see how areas like Fayetteville kind of survive on Veterans Day. Like, all the free meals and the shopping and stuff, it's, it's pretty crazy around here right. on Veterans Day, man. So it's like... Yeah, I don't. I don't venture out on Veterans Day holidays. Uh.
1: It's like the busiest day at you know the the theme park. Yeah, you know, like yeah. you never go on the Saturday morning. Yeah,
0: it's, how many five dollar margaritas can you hand out?
1: I, you know, I haven't tested that. Yet, <laughs> but you know what? I think I'm gonna do it in the Fayetteville area this this, this coming weekend. So, <laughs> drink responsibly. What are you talking Absolutely. about? Absolutely, drink
0: responsibly. Uh, okay, Veterans Day events in the local area. So you got the Veterans Day Parade for Fayetteville on 4 November, Veterans Day Parade in Southern Pines 11 November. And the reason I bring those out, because those are the two that we're supporting this year. The command uh, was asked to support by both cities by providing soldiers' equipment display as part of the Veterans Day Parades. Uh, so make sure you know you check that stuff out. And it's an important thing, and not just because uh, the veterans, which that's what the holiday is all about, but it's important to kind of show – here, you know, the folks in the military are tied with the community. We're a part of it. This is where we live. And, you know, we want to be a part of it. So uh, shout out to all those veterans out there who serve. Appreciate your service. we got a ton of them. And everybody knows the veteran community for SOF is so, so big. I didn't know it was like that whenever I first got here. Right. And we're like, yeah, veterans, you know, and like not to discredit them, but like, no, these veterans actually like have power and influence. here. Yeah.
1: Right. It's not it's not Jimmy at the VFW. No. It's just like – Got great war stories, yeah. but Doesn't much, you know. Can't call the CG, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: it's uh, kind of a different, uh, different sphere of influence here, which is it's kind of cool. Absolutely, yeah. So
1: it, it's it really ties into the legacy and the influence that everybody has, even out of uniform. You know? Yeah.
0: So again, thanks for all the veterans. Make sure you go out and support those local events here. So this November marks the 60th anniversary of the passing of uh, President John F. Kennedy. And just a few weeks before his passing, earlier in the month on November 8th, so the command is going to honor JFK with uh, its annual wreath laying ceremony at his gravesite at Arlington National Cemetery. So many of us in the command uh, loosely know about JFK, like, oh, JFK gave us the Green Berets. Uh, But I think it's worthwhile to do kind of a deeper dive on JFK just to learn a little bit more, you know, what's his legacy, what does that mean for us today? Uh, one for, you know, like I said, it's been 60 years, uh, you know, since his passing, you know, is that legacy still alive today? Is it still relevant? That sort of thing. You know, as, as part of that, I think Jared having you here as uh, the USAC historian office deputy uh, having you here is a, a I'm looking forward to a great conversation. So Jared needs no introduction beyond that. He's uh, worked six years in army psychological operations. Like I said, he's the deputy at the USAC historian office since 2010 he grew up in Topeka, Kansas, earned a Master's in History from the Virginia Commonwealth University, Master's Theology from Liberty University, and has a Ph.D. in History from Kansas State University. Jared, thanks for being here.
2: Oh, Thank you for having me. So I'll do a little bit of a correction on my bio. Oh, all right. Yeah, so um, I was not psychological operations. I was actually a medical uh, guy. And later, during my civilian career, I was um, inducted as a— Uh, Honorary member of the Psychological Operations Regiment. Uh, So uh, uh, We'll have to
1: correct the USASOC record on that. I think that's where I pulled that biographical information. (laughs) Yeah, great.
2: And I'm not from Topeka, although I lived not far from there. Uh, When I was in the military, I was stationed in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which is not far from Topeka. I'm actually originally from Quincy, Massachusetts, moved down and kind of raised in Richmond, Virginia area. Okay. And once I left there for the military in 2003... I haven't been back since. I've been kind of moving around, but I've been pretty
1: stable here in North Carolina for about 14 years now.
0: Oh yeah, this must well be home for you now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you a K State guy? So you know, big, uh, big like Kaepernick fan, or like who's your guy?
2: Not. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not a sports guy. Oh, not a sports. <laughs> I, you know, I a historian saw, that's not a sports guy. I saw. It's yeah, not... I know. Go figure that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, no, I every time I see uh, K State on the on the. Sports channel or something. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. They're they're doing something. I just never paid attention to. It. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, t- I was too busy in school and too busy in the military to really get into that.
1: Outstanding. All
0: right. So before we kind of jump straight to talking JFK, I know you brought it up to us, you know, before we were recording, that it's kind of important to look back before JFK. So we kind of want to understand where was uh, the United States post World War II. Eisenhower administration transition at JFK, kind of what was the country's strategic priorities? I know we know Cold War, great power competition. So I just kind of want to get your thoughts there on where did America kind of have itself or define itself during that period of time? Sure.
2: Um, So there's a lot there. Volumes and volumes have been uh, written on on this era. But just to kind of give a broad-brushed overview, after World War II, uh, the Allied powers – they occupy Berlin. It's divided into uh, zones of occupation. The post-war era quickly settles into sort of a bipolar arrangement um, with the – into communist and non-communist spheres. This quickly – tensions quickly escalate into uh, sort of a, a, a global, as you say, a great power competition where each one of the major powers are vying for influence – Uh, In the other areas. So uh, in the case of Soviet Russia, that's Eastern Europe primarily. Um, For us, it's obviously Western Europe. But quickly, this starts to affect other areas of the world. Tensions are are getting really high. We have the uh, after World War II. we have the Berlin airlift. We have the communist takeover in China in 1949, same year that the Soviets uh, detonate the first uh, atomic bomb. And then we have what's called the containment theory or the containment strategy. Uh, containment is sort of what guides broadly uh, the U.S. Cold War foreign policy for really decades. Um, and the idea is simply to keep communism out of where it's not already. The first test of this is going to be in Korea uh, where North Korea uh, crosses the line and uh, in 1950 and we get involved in that. That's just as Truman uh, Truman. Uh, His – 1952 is his last year and uh, President Eisenhower is elected. When Eisenhower comes in in 19 uh, – inaugurated in 1953, obviously he's got the respect as a great military leader, uh, great uh, thinker and he's going to – if there's anybody who's in the right position or in the right place to kind of keep America going and, and take a stand, it's going to be Eisenhower. Where his sort of view is, is he's not satisfied with containment. Yeah. We can we can do better, and he has this idea of kind of rollback. Is we're going to not only just contain what's what's in our sphere and what's not already communist, we're going to roll back. We're going to push back on it. Unfortunately, he didn't really have the means to do that. The main weapon, literally at his disposal, is going to be nuclear arms.
0: Oh, whoa, that's escalating things. (laughs)
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that's where you have the nuclear option is the only option. Nuclear option. And you have – yeah, you've got one option, and and that's nuclear. And so that's when you have, during his administration, the uh, rise of what they call massive retaliation. Really, any sort of move uh, that's seen as an attack on the U.S. or its allies will be met no matter what that move is with a possible nuclear retaliation, nuclear response. Yeah, People don't know a whole lot about this, but uh, the closest – Prior to the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 62, the closest that we got to using nuclear weapons. It was talked about in, in Korea. Um, MacArthur talked about it, but you know that was part, one of the reasons it led to his um, you know, his firing. Uh, but it came close in 1955 in the Taiwan Straits with the uh, Chinese bombing of Kimoi and Matsu. and Kimoi and Matsu, the islands offshore of the mainland, became a big topic of uh, discussion during the presidential debate in 1960. So the problem was is that Eisenhower didn't have a whole lot of flexibility. Literally, it's all or nothing. The one thing that he had at his disposal was the one thing that he wasn't willing or wanting to use, and that's the nuclear option. So during the presidential debate of 1960, uh, debates, uh, Kennedy – it's Kennedy versus uh, uh, Richard Nixon on behalf of the Republican Party. And Richard Nixon was – Eisenhower's vice president, um, roughly the same age. Um, one of the things that sort of separated the new round of candidates from the predecessors, from uh, Eisenhower in particular, was this idea of of age, to be honest with you. Kennedy uh, – and to a lesser extent Nixon, but Kennedy brought um, a sense of youth and energy that I think had largely – been lost. Eisenhower was reliable, his military judgment was deemed you know authoritative and people looked to him. he was wise, but he was also 70 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then here's Kennedy coming in at 43 uh, 43 years old. Uh, Nixon was a little older I think 47 48 time frame around then. but uh, there, there was a there was a kind of a, a difference there, a juxtaposition there between uh, uh, between the generations basically. And, as I mentioned earlier, with regard to uh, Kimoy and Matsu, that was a big topic of discussion. Honestly, during those debates, it became apparent that uh, Kennedy and Nixon agreed a lot more than they disagreed. Yeah, and during that time frame, the differences between these people were just kind of minor shades. They weren't so much vast differences. so, you know, Kennedy was just as much a dedicated Cold Warrior as Eisenhower was. Right? Kennedy believed in, co- in uh, containment just as much as Eisenhower did. Uh, Kennedy wanted to liberate areas as well or roll back just as much as Eisenhower. So there's a lot of similarities. But one of the criticisms of, I guess, the previous administration was that we just weren't doing enough. Yeah. And so uh, that's what he kind of brought to the campaign – and that's what he vowed to bring to the presidency: was a sense of energy, a new sense of leadership, and a new sense of involvement in international affairs.
0: That that debate is that the one that was televised that people kind of accredit to it being on TV, and that's why Kennedy won. Uh, but you know, people were saying whenever they listened to just the audio of it, they thought that uh, Nixon won. But you know, like you're saying, the you know the difference of you know Kennedy being the the younger or the younger looking guy he wasn't that much younger than Nixon. But
2: yeah, so. Uh, there was a a series of debates. I want to say there was three or four. And like most people,
1: I've sat around and watched them all. I'm sure you all have too, right? Right. Um, Ke- Kevin uh, does it every week. Kevin yeah, does it, it. It's, it's, right. Right. <laughs> you know, I just moved to you know Fort Bragg. So, or I'm sorry, Fort Liberty, and that's uh, you know, that's the social life I have now. <laughs> that's ex- that's exactly right. Old old historical YouTube videos.
2: Yeah. So so you're right. Um, the the on the debate, they said that if you if you listen to the debate. Nixon won. If you watched it, yeah, it yeah. was Kennedy. If memory serves, I believe that Nixon was actually sick uh, prior to That's that. Right. I remember he was sweating. He, he was sweating the, yeah. a lot, and he refused uh, makeup, so he looked uh, a little pale. You know, looking back on it now, i it looks fine to me, but I guess back then it really there was a real contrast. Yeah.
1: Um, was that the? Uh, I remember the the newspapers were doing cartoons of him wiping the sweat from his nose. Yeah, because he was sweating. Yeah, 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 yeah. so like they the, that was in like the New York Times, like the comic strip the very next day. Yeah, and that harmed the campaign too. Yeah. And so he, you know, Kennedy just has
2: this um, this energy about him, uh, this desire to see America kind of take uh, its rightful place as sort of the leaders of the free world. And I believe he borrowed a Jeffersonian quote where he says that he he wanted to spread the disease of liberty. Kind of a kind of an interesting <laughs> kind of an interesting uh, of all quote the quotes
1: he can pull from Jefferson. Right, when you're
2: like that's yeah. that's the one. Right. So uh, yeah, he's uh, he's narrowly elected. Um, he's inaugurated in um, January of uh, '61. Just to kind of back up a little bit, I I think there's this popular misunderstanding that there was this vast difference in uh, Cold War approach between Eisenhower and Kennedy. Yeah, the, that Eisenhower was that's the nukes guy, mm-hmm. and Kennedy is the special warfare, you know, uh, special forces guy. Yeah, in reality, they were both both. <laughs> um, you know, I mean. The first deployment of special forces um, to Korea was under Eisenhower. Sure. Eisenhower also deployed special forces to Laos starting in 1959. Obviously, we're involved in some more um, secretive stuff and uh, going on in uh, Iran in 53, Guatemala in 54. So Eisenhower – not to mention going back to his World War II experience. I mean obviously Eisenhower has experience with the Office of Strategic Services and sure. the, the European theater. So he's no stranger to that. He's no stranger to um psychological warfare, right? McClure, General Robert A. McClure, he's his chief of psychological warfare during World War II uh, under Eisenhower. That's when you get uh, things like we get really proactive with things like Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio yeah. Liberty in Eastern Europe. So I mean, Eisenhower's not a stranger to these sort of things, um, but it wasn't at the forefront i don 't think of his yeah. of his strategy. He viewed i guess the use of the military as primarily reactionary and interventionist True. Um, when something happens, we have to respond in some way. I think Kennedy came in with an idea Is like no we're going to be a little bit more uh, proactive and Kennedy was not an anti nuke guy either yeah um, it was during his administration that he he Really starts kicking the arms race back up, um, increase in nuclear submarines, missiles, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, all those sorts of things, and plus a conventional army buildup as well right so they're both both, yeah, I think it was just it was, a lot of it was a view of how active are we going to be in the world sure, what are the tools we 're going to use, and what are the you know kind of the the ideals and the idealism that we 're going to use? Um, that's going to be kind of driving it.
0: Okay. So Kennedy's president now, and we want to look at uh, some of those big key things in, in his presidency that are specifically tied to uh, reverence toward the special forces, how, how you know special forces always say they kind of view Kennedy as almost like he's the patron saint of the special forces regiment. <laughs> it's the kind of way it looks like to me when I first got here. But uh, so in, what was it, 1961, he comes to then Fort Bragg, and basically, uh, witnesses what I, I what I've seen is like a pretty epic uh, little dog and pony show to a certain extent. <laughs> uh, so um, he gets he he lands a pope and it's a giant uh, sort of demonstration, large passer interview sort of thing. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, him, him coming to Fort Bragg and visiting? Kind of what that looked like?
2: Yeah, sure. So you know, again, this is where. Uh, Put my historian hat on, and I like to provide a little bit of context. So this is in October of uh, sixty-one. Um, the Berlin Crisis is in full That's force, right? right? Yeah. So that goes on through most of the latter half of nineteen sixty-one. In a nutshell, you know, Khrushchev, the Soviet Premier, is looking to resolve the Berlin issue once and for all, and his idea, you know, ideally, is to make. Um, Berlin entirely part of East Germany. Of course, that's um, you know if you look at a map, west you know the western zones are essentially an island in the middle in the of middle. right yeah. yeah with one causeway yeah, in right. and out. So um, you know, and, and Kennedy's not going to budge on it. So so you got those tensions there. Just a couple months prior to the visit, you have the Berlin Wall um, that's, uh, that's that that uh, Khrushchev uh, puts up. Um, there's all these, uh, he, and he does that, you know, to kind of make a stand. But one of the main reasons was, um, I forget the, the figures. It was in the hundreds of thousands, I'll say annually that were kind of moving, that were refugees from the East into the West. And a lot of them were, you know, sort of your professionals and your intelligentsia and those kinds of things. And it, it was becoming a real problem for him. So, you know, it's. Yeah, they always say that's the first time in history that a wall was built to keep people in. <laughs> um, and so there's all these things going on. That's sort of the, the general atmosphere it, yeah. that's going on. So he comes uh, to, as you say, you know, then Fort Bragg lands at Pope as uh, two divisions. I believe it's 82nd, 101st mm-hmm. there. And they do, you know, all the, the honors. And he's quickly uh, taken over to the McKellar's Pond area to get the special warfare demonstration. And I don't know where all of the. I guess lore came from. I think there's this idea that he came with the green beret in his hand and, and kind of handed it over to the, you know, special forces uh, soldiers there and said, hey, now it's yours. Uh, you know, come. Um, you're now, you can now wear it. Not really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, that's the thing
0: always hear that it gets exaggerated. Yeah yeah so. yeah.
2: yeah. so the army had actually authorized the wear of the beret the month before. Yeah. And um, I mean, he was certainly a supporter of it. He was not. Against it by any means, um, but uh, and later, as you know, a few months later he writes his famous letter where he talks about the green beret yeah. as a as a mark of you know distinction and a sign of freedom and um, but at the at uh, at fort Bragg, uh, he gets the full load of special warfare demonstration. What are the functions of a of an a detachment um, some some uh, demonstrations on on the lake that are out there. Um, you yeah, actually have a psychological warfare demonstration. I believe that's you know one of the soldiers drew a picture of of a leaflet yeah. and they actually <laughs> and they actually dropped the leaflet on them by the end of the day. Yeah. So that was uh, that was kind of fun.
0: It was a it was a jetpack too. When I saw, yeah, it. there
2: was a jetpack. <laughs> it
0: was a rocket belt or something, right? But yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, you know, those didn't stay in the army inventory. For yeah, that long. yeah, don't, yeah. The
0: you know. yeah, we don't have we don't have jetpacks still. No, but no probably no, have. That's did. classified. Probably have old telephone wires still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I might have.
2: I might have stayed in a little longer if they had jetpacks. That would have been a little more fun. But, uh, uh, yeah. So he gets the special warfare, and then you get the famous photo of him um, uh, shaking hands, meeting with uh, General Yarbrough, yeah, and uh, who was the special warfare center in school. Um, you could kind of think of Swick at the time. As what we would think of as USASOC at the time. It was the higher – it was not just a training institution. I mean it was uh, actually a a commanding – it was a command. Uh, So it commanded special forces and psychological warfare uh, elements. Quick note real quick on on the idea of special warfare. Um, A few years ago, we were – as the US Army Special Forces Command was being transitioned to become the first Special Forces Command, they were discussing what to name – The command and Mm -hmm. one of the front runners was kind of, you know, U.S. Army Special Warfare Command, uh, U.S. Army Special Warfare or First Special Warfare Division, Mm -hmm. these kinds of things. And one of our, um, you know, taskings was, hey, what's the origins of the term Special Warfare? So I'm like, oh, this is easy. This is right up our (laughs) lane. No, it wasn't. Uh, We had (laughs) we had terrific difficulty trying to pin down where this term came from. Uh, and this is just me talking now. I, I could be totally off base because I have no proof of this. Uh, it wasn't in doctrine um, when it came. So in fifty two, the psycholog- in, um, 1952, the Psychological Warfare Center was established. Under that falls the Psychological Warfare units and the Special Forces units. 1956, it's re- renamed as the U.S. Army Special Warfare Center and school. Okay, so that's five years roughly before Kennedy – is here right? yeah. and you're doing special warfare demonstrations. So what does that term mean? Nobody can answer it. And it's not in it wasn't <laughs> in doctrine. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't in doctrine. I was like, so why did they name it that? And this is just me, this is just my theory. I think that there came the idea that psychological warfare no longer kind of captured everything that was going on at the center. I think they took special from special forces and warfare from psychological warfare, mashed it together (laughs) and and called it special Uh, warfare.
0: Sometimes the simplest
2: answer. (laughs) To me, it made the most sense in the absence
1: of anything else. A big big G staff putting it all together, putting their heads together in there. Yeah,
2: (laughs) right. I'm sure some captain or major was uh, in (laughs) in charge of that. But um, so in Kennedy's administration, um, he really presses the army as, hey, what is this special warfare thing? What Mm is it? Tell me what it is. So he has the army actually conduct a study that is uh, released in 62. In and the way that the army defines it at that point was that uh, the three pillars of special warfare are psychological warfare, unconventional warfare, and counterinsurgency. Those are sort of the, the three pillars of it. And that corresponded to the three major departments that were under the Special Warfare Center at the time. So it all kind of it was retroactively kind of defined yeah. uh, during his administration, so he gets the full demonstration while he's here of uh, special warfare um then he goes uh he's taken over sicily drops zone uh sees an airdrop an and then he's uh then he's on his
0: way so yeah, so whenever he leaves he he then he pushes out the memo that you were talking about earlier right that that makes the the comment what is it that uh the green yeah. Bray is a symbol of excellence, a badge of courage, a mark of distinction in the fight for freedom. In the fight for freedom, yeah. yeah. So that
2: comes in uh, um, 1962, about okay. April 62.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So from there, the other big thing that pops up, you know, all the time when you look at JFK and the uh, history of special forces is then his speech that he gives uh, at the commencement uh, of West Point in class of 1962. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Kind of like. I was reading about it the speech is, is very interesting. he did not write it himself uh somebody else wrote it mm-hmm. As all good speech writers <laughs> <laughs>
2: right yeah Theodore Sorensen, you know he yeah. gets he gets the credit and uh, yeah somebody else writes it um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a privileges of office i guess yeah um yeah so april sixty two he he writes the letter about the green beret um and then he gives the um he's asked to do the commencement uh, speech at West Point of june of sixty two um you should note that for about a year, the U.S. has gotten really heavy, a, a lot heavier involved. into Vietnam. Yeah, involved in Vietnam. Yeah, um, that's becoming during the early part of his presidency. Um, the focus in Southeast Asia was not Vietnam at all; it was Laos. Uh, when he gets in, um, I'm sure, I'm not sure how many of the listeners have heard of the Bay of Pigs. May have heard about it. But that was actually a uh, an operation that had been approved by Eisenhower. Again, going back to Eisenhower, he was not averse to, you know, taking some sort of um, you know covert actions or unconventional actions. Um, but that the plan was to use, um, train, and equip, and transport Cuban exiles to um, land in Cuba and hopefully foment a reaction against uh, popular uh, reaction against uh, the Castro uh, government. Failed miserably. This is in April of 61. And uh, so at that point, you know, he's like, OK, never again. Um, and he actually takes a more overt stance with the use of um, unconventional warfare. So yeah. it's at that point, it's in reaction to the Bay of Pigs that he, um, he makes our operations in Laos uh, a more overt sure. presence with the establishment of a mag there. And he's doing the same thing in Vietnam. And he sees special warfare in general, but special forces in particular, as sort of this antidote to dealing with wars of national liberation. That's the term that, you know, mostly the Ch- uh, communist Chinese were using. Yeah. Um, so his speech at West Point is to kind of deliver these ideas um, to the graduating class to tell them. You need to think differently about your sure. profession. yeah um, the challenges are in some way they're they're historic and you know they've always been like this and in some ways, you know they're they're entirely new. um you need to think creatively um, about these uh, these different problems that you may be faced with and that was the more and he highlighted special forces in particular in the speech. He may be asked to, um, to serve in, in special forces. So to think along uh, those lines as
0: well. Yeah. So, so we got a clip of the speech. So we, want we to do. Pl- yeah. So we want to play it just so we can kind of react to it live.
3: On the other hand, your responsibilities may involve the command of more traditional forces, but in less traditional roles, men risking their lives, not as combatants but as instructors or advisors or as symbols of our nation's commitments. The fact that the United States is not directly at war in these areas in no way diminishes the skill and the courage that will be required. The service to our country which is rendered or the pain of the casualties which are suffered. To cite one final example of the range of responsibilities that will fall upon you, you may hold a position of command with our special forces, forces which are too unconventional to be called conventional, forces which are growing in number and importance and significance. For we now know that it is wholly misleading to call this the nuclear age or to say that our security rests only on the doctrine of massive retaliation Korea has not been the only battleground since the end of the Second World War. Men have fought and died in Malaya, in Greece, in the Philippines, in Algeria, and Cuba, and Cyprus, and almost continuously on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. No nuclear weapons have been fired. No massive nuclear retaliation has been considered appropriate. This is another type of warfare new in its intensity, ancient in its origin, war by guerrillas, subversives, insurgents, assassins, war by ambush instead of by combat, by infiltration instead of aggression, seeking victory by eroding and exhausting the enemy instead of engaging him. It is a form of warfare uniquely adapted to what has been strangely called wars of liberation, to undermine the efforts of new and poor countries to maintain the freedom that they have finally achieved. It preys on economic unrest and ethnic conflicts. It requires in those situations where we must counter it. And these are the kinds of challenges that will be before us in the next decade. If freedom is to be saved, a whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force, and therefore a new and wholly different kind of military training.
0: So, as uh, somebody that's from Massachusetts, what do you think of his accent? Is it still? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is the most important part. You know, I never developed the accent. You know, I had, uh, you know, still had family
1: up there, and I, yeah, I, yeah just none of them have that. Think of an accent twang yeah the the quincy twang it. No. so out of that
0: uh, out of that whole speech i know the, the line that people always draw to is the one about uh special forces but uh to me the one that kind of rings true like even today is where he's you know kind of saying what you were saying is like hey we need a whole new approach a whole new strategy to what you know is actually out there and he's telling you know these future officers you're going to, have to be a part of that. You're going to, have to like be the ones that lead that and be creative to solve these problems coming up. So uh yeah, can't even imagine sitting there listening to that uh in real time, but uh
2: yeah, and I think I think you're right and I, you know, he's pushing sort of this responsibility for you know, um creativity and being proactive down to, you know, lower levels. This is not going to be something that's going to be uh, always directed from the top. It's not always going to be a reaction to something else. It's, you're going to be in many places that are not where there's not actually an armed conflict going on, and you're going to have to think, you know, about how best to uh, uh, deal with that particular or shape that particular uh, situation that's yeah. going on there. Um, you know, one of the ideas that I guess the enduring things, and not to to get a- ahead of ourselves, but this idea of being having friends and allies and partners in areas where we can't be all the time, and that was a big concern for Eisenhower's this idea. It's like look we he was a he was a realist um, we can't be everywhere all yeah. the time um, we can't pay for everything all the time um and so you have to you know, literally pick your battles, whereas you know I think Kennedy has this uh, a different view of it where yeah, we can't do everything everywhere all the time, but we can. That doesn't mean that we have to be hands off entirely, right? Um, and so, you know, his this is going to be his tool, um, you know, this capability and this really this mindset to kind of get after these problems that we weren't really uh, focused on uh,
1: during the previous administration. I think that's a good point. You know, a good segue out of that, too, is like he talks about the non-military problems, um, which we you will face will be the most demanding diplomatic, political and economic. So that's has to be a different approach than the military took even World War Two up until this point. So when we talk about changing strategy, how do we incorporate or how, do, how does this incorporation of these these other pieces of essentially the DICE acronym um, play a part in how we do special warfare?
2: Yeah. So you know, I, I'll leave some of that to the um, to the planning
1: strategist, and uh, <laughs> you know, I, you know I, I guess historically, how did that play out? Yeah. yeah there There's know. the spin for the historian.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's really just kind of a, a reimagining of what the military, um, um, what its potential is in. Um, in foreign policy and, and our role in the world I'll, I'll give you an example you know I prior to becoming the deputy command historian at, at USASAC, I was the psychological operations branch historian and you know one of the areas of interest that people have is the evolution of uh, military terminology um, and so why did psychological warfare when and why and how did it become psychological operations? Mm-hmm. Um, and it happened uh, roughly during Kennedy's administration uh, because of a growing realization that this capability has application outside of combat um, uh, combat scenarios. Um, it's not just hey, there's a shooting war. Bring this thing out. Let's employ it, and as soon as the war is over, we're going to dismantle it, and uh, and we'll wait for the next war. It's this idea that it can it can constantly be an asset and something that we can utilize in multiple you know different scenarios across the you know across the uh, military spectrum, and I think that applies uh, on a broader. Level as well, and just not just psychological operations, but the whole range of special warfare capabilities. Um, and we saw we saw that play out um, you know obviously during the Vietnam time frame, but we've definitely seen it play out in the post nine eleven era, um, where you know we have soldiers you know building and um, strengthening partnerships in non-combat areas. On a daily basis, um, things that you wouldn't really typically associate with a historic military function, you know, the soldier ambassadors, um, the soldier diplomats, the soldier, you know, uh, humanitarians and all those different functions. It's just sort of a, you know, a wider view of, you know, how we can impact the world for the better. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And in each of these engagements, like whether it's the speech or, you know, the visit to Fort Bragg, you know, we, you know we've said you know, Kennedy is definitely shaped by what's going on in those weeks and months leading to him getting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the parallels from uh, what he's saying, I think there's a lot today. And I know it's not something, you know, for, you know, historian or whatever, more for the strategist or whatever. But uh, it, the things that Kennedy are saying about needing a whole new set of strategy, a whole new way of solving things, I feel like it's kind of like where the military is at now. And it, and it happens a lot. You know, military reinvents itself every, however often, you know, coming out of, uh, you know, Afghanistan, global war and terrorism and where we're now, kind of where the focus is with uh, the near-peer threats, and strategic competition. Uh, it's very similar. And it's like, wow, here it is uh, 60 years later and uh, we're not right back where we are in the same kind of way, but it, it's very similar.
2: Yeah. And I think, I think what's, you know, the longest – the most timeless aspects of his speech was not, you know, whether he's talking about communist insurgencies or, you know, special forces specifically, all those, you know, those are relevant. Um, I think it's the idea is that what's what's so timeless and, you know, the, the legacy of it is that we always have to be ahead of it. We always have to be thinking. We can't let our guard down. We have to have that, you know um, – not aggressive but we we at least have to have a, an active mindset and and what we want to achieve and how we're going to achieve it and who we're going to work with yeah. um and what creative solutions are available what can we apply um that may not we might not have traditionally done before i yeah. think you know that's some of the relevant um, aspects of, of what i think he introduced in his remarks
0: yeah Okay, so the, the last thing we kind of want to move to is uh, JFK's funeral. You know, He's was assassinated in 1963. Uh, so at his funeral, it's very well known that uh, uh, Green Brays were there as part of the Honor Guard uh, and that uh, they were requested specifically uh, by First Lady uh, Jackie Kennedy. Uh, so if you can, just kind of walk us through the funeral and kind of like what – Kind of the uh, special forces tie to it there.
2: Yeah, so um, this is one of the things in, in you know preparation for uh, coming on the uh, the podcast was I, I really didn't know a lot about how that really played. I knew they were involved. I know that's become a long tradition ever since, but I wasn't sure exactly how that whole process played out. It was really kind of um, interesting uh, when you see how quickly. It all came together. And um, so president is assassinated on a, on a Friday by, you know, by overnight. He's back in D.C. Um, special the Special Warfare Center is getting a phone call from the White House and, you know, from in uh, your right about uh, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy and his brother, uh, the attorney general, Robert F. Kennedy, wanted Special Forces representation there, so they get a call at eleven in the morning. They're in D.C. by four o'clock in the afternoon, um, and they. I'm meet. assuming ninety five traffic wasn't Cl- that bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not the same. As, yeah, that that would never happen. I was like, man, that's that math doesn't even compute now. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, they were apparently in uh, in in D.C. by about four o'clock. Uh, it was a contingent. Uh, I've seen a couple different numbers, but it was a contingent of about forty five, forty six uh, special sure, forces yeah. soldiers, led by the um, the deputy commanding officer of SWIC. Um, also, the SWIC sergeant major was there. Um, and from that point forward, um, when they moved uh, the casket over to the Capitol building uh, for uh, for people for visitors to to come by, that was on a Sunday, um, and then. You had the funeral um, – the actual service on – I believe that was Monday morning and then moved to the gravesite uh, after that. Throughout that whole time, there was never a point when there was not a special forces soldier with with them, uh, with the casket at, at any given time. Um, anyway, it was at the gravesite is when the Swig sergeant major um, laid a green beret at the foot of the gravesite and – and I have the quote uh, – yeah, he uh, – this is from the uh, swick Sergeant Major Francis Ruddy when he says, He gave the beret to us and we considered it appropriate that it be given back to him. It was a final memorial from the Special Forces to the president. And every year uh, thereafter, they would do the annual wreath laying uh, yeah. at, at the grave site. Um, I'll have to – Admittedly, I will have to go back and do some more research. There was apparently a period where that didn't, didn't happen. happen. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to say maybe through the late '80s, or early '90s, and I think about 15 years ago, it picked was, it back up. Yes, yeah. it was picked back up, and it, it's, it's continued since. So, yeah, very. That really, as if it wasn't already a, you know, a, you know, a close you know affinity between the president and the special forces and vice versa that really cemented that i guess that that association that legacy of of advocacy and and you know support for the special forces and their love of of the president and their dedication to him so uh yeah there was it, it was interesting because there was no time for rehearsals you know this is the president of the united states sure, yeah no time for rehearsals, notes, and these they're just jumping into it, and they're just present. they're just there, and they're making sure that uh that uh, all the fitting honors uh, of of this man were 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 carried out
1: so I think that's a testament to special forces in general that you know no matter the mission with zero prep time the the reaction is is professional and it's you know effective right absolutely.
0: Well, Dr. Tracy, I uh I think the last thing we you know you hit at home was you know the advocacy and the support of the president is why uh special forces still you know holds him in honor today. And uh so, but yeah, so appreciate you taking the time being here. Uh look forward to having you back maybe on another topic. Got some ideas we're run past you, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh this was definitely worthwhile. Like I said, we got uh depending on whenever you're listening, we got our annual wreath land ceremony on November 8th where we will do exactly what uh, uh, kind of what we just talked about, where we'll have a uh, uh, cordon wreath laying, and then our command our major will do the same thing, uh, where he'll lay uh, his green beret on uh, JFK's uh, grave site there. So, all right, everybody, thanks for listening. Once again, we're back. We're bigger. We're better. We're more indigenous than than ever. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure you like, rate, view, and subscribe. And we're going to do this every two weeks. You can expect a new episode. And if we don't, uh, you know, update it with a new episode, you can come call me a liar to my face, I guess. <laughs> but again, thanks for listening.
1: Bye everybody.